Judges chapter 9, as we consider Gideon's son, Abimelech, and his conspiracy, his treachery. It's a long chapter, but we're going to look at the entire thing. Uh, So we'll begin reading at verse 1. Davis calls him the destroyer of Israel. And so uh, the sad part is he comes from within. So uh, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said... He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, uh, all of them, uh, all of Beth Milo, And they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. And when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint the king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over the tree, over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, Then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you dealt well with Jerubbaal in his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his seventy sons on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the man of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem, and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there, for fear of Abimelech his brother. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers." And the men of Shechem sent men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told Abimelech. Now Gael the son of Ebed came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. 
So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor uh, with uh, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. Then Zebuel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed. His anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gael the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are, fortifying the city against you. Now therefore get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. It shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity." So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Gael spoke again, See, People are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now, with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled with him, uh, and he fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. And Abimelech dwelt at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his brothers, so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out in the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his field, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god of Berit. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zaman, and he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And then he said to the people who were with him, What have you seen me do? Make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bough and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he, so he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, armor and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman killed him. And so this, his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. 
Thus, God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeru, Baal. Well, perhaps you've experienced being stabbed in the back in life. It is a very painful thing to go through, being betrayed by a close friend, or perhaps even just a close friend not uh, letting you down when you needed them the most. Uh, both of those scenarios can be extremely painful. And most of the time, the largest amount of hurt can come from the people that we know the most. And the reason it is far worse receiving pain from a friend or family than an enemy is because you don't expect it from a friend or a family. You expect it from the enemy. I know the government hates me. I know the, my enemies hate me. But you don't expect it from your friend. Well, the sad reality in Israel is that the conflict has arisen from within. We see the issues are arising from within. We saw last time in Judges chapter 8 that Gideon had some issues, uh, not just with Midian, uh, but with the people of Israel, with tribes. But now once again, we see that the destroyer of Israel is rising up from within Israel. The problem here isn't Midian. The problem here isn't Canaan or Moab. But it's Israel once again. And the entire book of Judges is all about the canonization of Israel. It's all about the salvation of the Lord. In contrast, or I guess in juxtaposition, the side-by-side recognition of how wicked Israel is, but how good and gracious God is to deliver them and to save them. But we see their life continues to degenerate. We see the last time of rest, the last instant of quiet, is in Judges 8.28. That's the last reference of any sort of rest from war in the book of Judges. And as we've seen in these cycles, it's not just that Israel becomes more idolatrous, but they become more fractured. They become more divided. They become uh, more, um, more, uh, more, there's more animosity between one another. We see this people is not united. They're not united in the things of God. They're not united in the worship of God, and they do not even worship God aright, according to the book of Deuteronomy. And so we're still in the section that deals with Gideon, but Gideon has passed away. God used Gideon to take out the Midianites, 300 men against 135,000 Midianites and other various peoples that fought with Midian. But now we see the legacy of Gideon. We see what happens with his children. We see what happens with his sons, and namely the one son of his concubine. And so the key problem that we see in chapter 9 is when one engages in wickedness against one's own people. There's a great wickedness that we see when we see this one who is Abimelech, this one who is the son of Gideon, this one who is of the tribe of Manasseh, engaging in treachery, not just against his own tribe, but against his own brothers against his own kin, against his own family. And so we see him conspiring for power. We see his pride and ambition. We see him conspiring to murder, the means of attaining what he desires, namely a kingdom. And then we see him conspiring against his own people. It doesn't matter who's in his way. The people are going to be collateral damage, but he doesn't care. He's only concerned with power. He's only concerned with kingship. And as we saw, this idea of kingship began to emerge in Judges chapter 8. Remember, the people said, Gideon, you be king. Gideon says, I don't want to be king. But then he starts living like a king. Well, Abimelech comes, and his name actually means my father is king. He wants to be king. 
He wants to reign. He wants power, but he wants to do it in his own way. And as we're going to see, God is going to bring judgment upon him. God is going to bring judgment upon Israel, going to bring a judgment upon an enemy, even if that enemy comes from within. And so in Judges chapter 9, the writer wants Israel and us to see that our God is a God who repays wickedness. Our God is a just God. Our God is one who brings about justice and will bring down his enemies. And in this case, it is from within. In this case, he's going to bring down and judge the wickedness of Abimelech, but he's also going to judge the wickedness of Shechem as well. It's kind of a twofold judgment, and so it's interesting how it plays out. I must confess, as I was reading this, I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to teach on this because I have no idea what's going on here. But you can't deny it's very interesting. You can't deny it's kind of a riveting section of Scripture as we consider God bringing judgment uh, upon his people for the treachery against the house of Jeroboam, the house of Gideon. So we'll look at this judgment of Yahweh, judgment of God under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see Abimelech's conspiracy in verses 1 through 21. And secondly, we'll see God's judgment in verses 22 through 57. So Abimelech's conspiracy, verses 1 through 21. And then we'll see God's judgment in verses 22 through 57. So let's first look at Abimelech's conspiracy in verses 1 through 21. And we see the conspiracy proper in verses 1 through 5. But verse 35 is important. We see that after Gideon passes away, we see that the children of Israel once again play the harlot. They go after other gods. They engage in idolatry and wickedness. They do not serve the one true God. But what else is mentioned is that they do not honor the house of Gideon. Verse 35. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Gideon certainly had his problems, but he was a servant of the Lord. Now, God's people are not supposed to deify the servants of the Lord, but nonetheless, we are called to esteem the servants of the Lord. And that certainly applies for New Testament. The New Testament certainly applies for pastors and deacons, especially elders, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 4. And so... We see Gideon, we see how this plays out. We see how this unfolds in Judges chapter 9. Now remember, God used Gideon, this kind of timid man. God affirmed Gideon. God said, I'm going to bring the victory. God brings that victory. Gideon certainly has his issues, including a king like Haram with 70 sons and even a, a concubine who gives birth to Abimelech in uh, Judges 8:31, which sets the stage for what we see in chapter 9. But nonetheless, he was still a judge. Nonetheless, he was still the savior of God's people uh, as God used Gideon to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And so we see the plan of Abimelech in play. It's very different from the cycles that we've seen. We know that Israel is playing the harlot, but a lot of what we see in chapter 9, Israel is functioning like a Canaanite nation. If you noticed... The name for God that is used here is not Yahweh. The covenant name of the Lord, it is Elohim. Now, God is God Almighty. God is God over all things. He is the one true God. But the nations would not have called God Yahweh. The Canaanites would not have called God Yahweh. 
Israel had that privilege, but Israel is acting like the nations around them. Israel has degenerated into a synagogue of Satan in many ways. They're functioning like the world around them, which they were not supposed to do. And so God is going to bring judgment, but we see the wickedness of Abimelech that leads to God's judgment. And so we see Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, goes to Shechem, uh, where he's from, where he's born. Gideon had a wife there, a female ser- or a female servant, the son of the female servant. He talks to his mother's brothers. He talks to his mother's kin. He speaks to them with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of the Baals of Shechem, of the men of Shechem, of the lords of Shechem. Baal can refer to the god Baal, but it can also refer to men in power. And so we see that used throughout Judges chapter 9, these men in power. So he's asking his brother or his mother's brothers, his uncles, can I please have an inn with the leaders of Shechem? Can I please have an inn with this town? And so please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you. All the 70 sons of Jerubbaal reigning over you or that one reigns over you. What's better, all these men of Ophrah or an actual one of Shechem? One who is actually flesh and blood. One who is actually of your line and actually of your kin. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And so they say, this is great. We do want the one who is of our kin. They don't think through just because he's our kin. Maybe he's not a great leader. Maybe he's not the best guy for the job. But they're like, okay, he's our kin. Let's bring him in anyway. Verse 3. His mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. Doesn't matter whether or not he can do it. Doesn't matter, matter whether or not he has kingly qualities. He is our brother. It is nepotism of the highest level. It is a conflict of interest of the highest form. They want him to be king and he's using them. We see his ambition. We see the forgotten one. The son that perhaps maybe Gideon didn't want to talk about. Now he is the one who's rising up and wants to remove the, 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 the power of his brothers, of his father's uh, sons, uh, uh, of his father's sons. Their heart was with him. He is our brother. And so we see. So they gave, verse 4, him 70 shekels. We see pagan shekels used for these worthless men. Maybe it was one shekel per man. Maybe that was the bounty. But in any case, they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berit. Now remember Shechem. Shechem was the place of the Shechemite, where the Shechemite dodecalogue, where this blessing and cursing would occur. We see it in Deuteronomy 27, and we see it in uh, Joshua chapter 8. Shechem was the place of renewal in Joshua 24. Now Shechem is also the place of great treachery in Genesis chapter 34. But the most recent place of Shechem, in our view, is a place of great renewal. Now look at the place. They're worshiping Baal Berit. They're worshiping Baal, but the Berit means covenant. They probably engaged and signed a treaty, signed this covenant with Baal. Not that you can actually sign a covenant with Baal, but that shows their allegiance. Baal Berit was the god of Shechem. But Yahweh was supposed to be the god of Shechem. Yahweh is supposed to be the one whom the people of Israel and the people of Shechem are to worship. But they go to Baal Berit instead. They go and grab some shekels from his temple 
And Abimelech uses them to hire these vile riffraff. These men, if you wanted someone to disappear, these were the men you would hire. These worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. So they follow Abimelech. So Abimelech is not doing things the right way. He's not doing it by way of an election. He's not doing because he, he's not doing it by way of next. No, because he's not next in line. So he has to remove these other ones. And so verse five, they go up to Oprah, where Gideon lives. Now remember, Gideon still remember the ephod was a snare there again. A lot of Baal worship still going on, even with Gideon, despite all the good things that he did. Uh, but it doesn't end well for Gideon. And so Abimelech goes up to Ophrah, and it just says he killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jeroboam, on one stone. Just one place where they probably killed all of them. Smash head there, lop off head here, but it's all on the same spot. It's all on the same stone in the same place. They were all killed at that one stone, except, except for one. So idolatry remains, treachery is prevalent and very uh, manifold, in Israel, in Shechem, in Ophrah, by Abimelech, but one gets away. Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left because he hid himself. So he flees, he goes away, and then we see Jotham's curse. You see, Jotham fleeing is important. And it goes with verse 6, and verse 6 goes with verses 7 and following, verses 7 through 21, with this parable of the trees. And notice this parable of the trees. Notice the occasion of it. It is the coronation of Abimelech. And the point is, we think Abimelech has won. (laughs) We think Abimelech has gotten away with it. We think Abimelech uh, has defeated all these ones. We think Jotham is just going to flee and that's going to be it. And so in verse 6, all the men of Shechem gathered together. All of Beth Milo, perhaps it's a... Uh, probably a prominent, perhaps prominent place near Shechem or a prominent uh, clan in Shechem or uh, near Shechem. Uh, But they all go and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So Abimelech is crowned and during the coronation, Jotham has something to say. And that begins at verse 7. He might have escaped, he might have fled, Abimelech might have been coronated, but as he's being crowned, Jotham has something to say from Mount Gerizim. And what's ironic is Mount Gerizim, if we go back to Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua chapter 8, with that Shechemite dodecalogue, we see that Mount Gerizim was supposed to, it was the place of blessing. That as the people of Israel saw Mount Gerizim, they'd recognize the blessing. But as they saw Mount Ebal, they'd recognize the cursing. Notice the reverse. Notice Gerizim is now going to be the mountain of cursing. And so Jotham, using the acoustics of that mountain, he yells down, he yells to the place, he yells uh, and he disrupts this coronation. And so we see that in verse 7. They, and when it was told Jotham, he goes, he stands on the top of Gerizim, he lifts his voice, he cries out, and he says to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem. We come to this parable of the trees. We come to this cursing of Shechem and this cursing of Abimelech. Listen to me, you Baals of Shechem, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And so there's a lot of difficulty with some of the nitty-gritties of what's going on here, but the main idea seems to be in view. 
you chose a worthless king. There's all these other ones who would be far better kings, but you chose a worthless king. Not that, he's against, not that Yahweh is against kingship. We see this in Deuteronomy 17, what a king should look like. But he's against a worthless king. We need one who should be a worthy king, but the one they chose is not. And so he illustrates this by way of a parable. So we see the first tree, the trees, they come. They went forth to anoint a king over them. And we see they go to the olive tree first. You olive tree, you reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men? I am used for a specific purpose. I'm used and I have a specific task. I am used in the temple of God to shine a light. Perhaps could be in view. My job is not to be king. So I don't want to leave my post and leave what I'm supposed to do and go and sway over trees. That's not my calling. But he would be better. An olive tree would be better than a bramble. Well, then they move on to the next guy, the next tree. Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Similar sort of idea. I have my job. I have my purpose. I am not going to be your king. And then they move on to the vine. And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men? Certainly the drink offering could be in view from Numbers 15. And go and sway over trees. Again, the same thing is in view. Then we transition to the bramble. And the bramble highlights the absurdity of choosing Abimelech as king. Verse 14, Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And notice what the bramble says to the trees, the audacity of the brambles, the absurdity of the bramble. If in truth you anoint me as king over you, come and take shelter in my shade. Do brambles have shade? Do brambles have a place where people can hide? That's how ridiculous it is to have a worthless leader. That's how ridiculous it is to have an unqualified man in leadership. And Abimelech certainly was that. But not only is it absurd, not only is he worthless, he also is filled with much wrath. Notice, then, but if you don't anoint me, he's going to be petty, he's not going to let it go, but let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So there's twofold judgment here. There is going to be judgment upon Abimelech, but there's also going to be judgment upon Shechem, because Shechem goes with it. Shechem anoints him. Shechem follows through with his plan. And so that David says, and then it's all important to see in light of what is seen in verses uh, uh, 7 through 21. All that plays a part with what we see in verses 22 through 57 as we see how God brings judgment. David says we must view all of verses 22 through 57 in light of Jotham's double-edged curse in verse 20. We'll get to that in just a minute. Fire came from Abimelech to destroy the men of Shechem, and fire came from Shechem and consumed Abimelech. And so the parable highlights this very thing, and Jotham then comes and applies that to uh, Abimelech. Verse 16, Now therefore you have acted in truth and sincerity. He is mocking them. They haven't acted in truth and sincerity. If you really did want Abimelech, 
If you really did it out of the goodness of your heart, if you've dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house, and have done to him as he deserves. But they haven't. Again, this goes with verse 35 of chapter 8. It highlights how wicked they have been. For my father fought for you. This is Gideon. Talking about Gideon risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. And now look how you're treating him. The people have forgotten. We see the the woke mob before the woke mob. We have this woke mob today that tears down the past. That tears down has no recognition for what men have done. And we see the same thing here. They have no recognition for what Gideon has done. What God had done through Gideon. But you have risen up this day. You have risen Shechem against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons. It's not just Abimelech, but you, Shechem, are culpable as well. King over the man of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But that's not what they did, did they? But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. The point is, he is clearly unqualified. It is clearly absurd and it is clearly wicked. And you are culpable. Abimelech is going to pay and also the men of Shechem are going to pay as well. And so Jotham runs away. Jotham flees he goes to Beer, he dwells there for fear of Abimelech, his brother, he runs away. Now, I admit I was struggling with some application here. How do I draw all these things out? How do I apply it for us? But I think Davis does a good job. He always, in my mind, does a very good job and highlights the problem of unqualified leaders, the problem of wicked leaders, the headache that those leaders can be. Certainly we know that in many ways. The headache, it ha- uh, we recognize the headache when fathers are not leading their families well. We recognize the headache when there's poor leadership in countries. I mean, I can name a few names right now. I'm just, you know, ones that run our country, ones that run the country south of us, you know, others in history. Don't forget Hitler was voted in, dear brethren. We forget that very thing. You see, people elect guys who have no idea what they're doing. Or they elect treacherous people. We live in such an absurd world that people elect absurd people. So we should not be surprised when it happens. But perhaps this also highlights the importance of leadership in the church. And the headache unqualified leaders can be. That's why it's important to choose biblical leaders based upon what we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And Davis has a blurb on the church he used to go to before he went to a Reformed church. And I'm sure it's applicable to our situation or our experience as well. The church that I used to attend, they never talked about 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. Here's what an elder should be. Here's what a deacon should be. I mean, they just think if you, can do, you have a mouth and you can open it, that you should be a pastor. They think that, wow, you got saved. You need to serve and lead all the... Brother, that's what happened to me. They're like, you're young, you're new, you've been saved here. Hopefully you grow as you teach others. I was blind. I was the blind man leading the blind. I had no idea what I was. God was merciful to me and God is gracious despite our issues and our problems. 
But the point is we need biblical leadership based upon 1 Timothy chapter 3 and follow what God has said because we need qualified leaders. Now, even men, we need ones who uh, God provides for that, but God, we need God to sustain those qualified leaders as well. I'm not saying qualified leaders don't have issues, don't have sins, but nonetheless, we need them. So there's the problem of unqualified leaders, but there's also the positive side and the blessing of how God protects his church by way of qualified leaders. That's a problem in Israel, isn't it? They don't have qualified leaders. There's no qualified men to preserve the truth. I mean, that's why God raises up prophets, these ones who are guardians of the theocracy, these ones who challenge the kings to remind them, you kings, this is what you are supposed to be doing. Well, God does that in the New Testament. And thankfully, Christ is the head of his church, and Christ will raise up men in his church, raise up faithful men according to what we see in 1 Timothy uh, in Titus chapter 1. And in Titus and Timothy, the idea is truth. Guiding the people in the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth that the people of God might not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That when we hear about factions, 1 Corinthians 11, there are factions among you to test you. So when you hear people say, why are all these denominations? Why can't we all just get along? Maybe in the providence of God, he's testing the people of God. I'm not saying there aren't other denominations that might differ from us. I'm not saying they're not true churches, but it helps us keep on our guard. It helps us, it helps us to be watchful and to be on guard with the things of the truth. And God does protect his church. God protects his church. God guides his church. God helps his church. And God uses discipline to protect his church, to remove unqualified men, to remove um, disorderly people by way of uh, discipline that we see in the New Testament. So there is the problem of unqualified leaders, but there is the blessing when God does provide qualified leaders as well. So that's Abimelech's conspiracy. Let's then look secondly at God's judgment. I know there's more verses, but we'll probably breeze through this just a little bit quicker. You notice we see God's judgment by way of division. God is going to bring animosity between Abimelech and Shechem. But notice how long Abimelech lasts. Three years. We want things to be solved tomorrow, but that's usually not how it goes. Abimelech reigns for three years. That's three long years without receiving his comeuppance. You might be sitting there for, for three years. The remnant might be sitting there for three years and going, I wonder when God is going to bring judgment on this wretch. Well, verse 23. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Notice God. Again, God and not Yahweh. Notice idolatry, treachery, conspiracy. It's not becoming of the people of God, not becoming of Yahweh. So he treats them like every other nation. And so Yahweh sends a spirit of ill will. Now this is tough for us, I think. Just like we see in 1 Samuel 16, the harmful spirit. Or we see in 1 Kings 22 when Micaiah says that he's, God sends a lying spirit into the mouth of the prophets who say Ahab's going to win the battle. But Micaiah is the only one who says you're going to die in battle. And he is the only one who is accurate and right. But nonetheless, it is the Lord who does it. The Lord who sends them. Now, the evil spirit is likely the devil. 
But the old boys highlight two things in view. One, it is probably the devil, but also two, their men have ill will in their hearts. And when we consider the wiles of the devil, you know what he does? He just gives suggestions to things that are already present in one's heart and mind. And God is not the one who is sinning here. God is not the author of sin here, but nonetheless, God uses an evil spirit. God uses one uh, uh, to bring ill will. Henry says, that is, they grew jealous one of another and ill-affected one to another. He slighted those that set him up and perhaps countenanced other cities, which now began to come into his interests more than he did theirs. And then they grew uneasy at his government, blamed his conduct, and quarreled at his impositions. This was from God. He permitted the devil, that great mischief maker, to sow discord between them, and he is an evil spirit, whom God not only keeps under his check, but sometimes serves his own purposes by. This is, not un, uh, this is not even out of the realm of the New Testament. First Peter chapter 5, the devil prowls around like the roar, a roaring lion, but God has dominion over all things. That's tough for us. But God is sovereign over all things, and as the devil prowls around, it does not make God the author of sin. It doesn't make, when man sins, it doesn't make man the author, or God the author of sin, but man sins, and the devil just stirs those very things up. We see this in, uh, we see how God uses the devil in the book of Job as well to bring, not to stir up evil amongst Job, but to bring calamity upon Job as well. So God is God and can do as he pleases, but he does not sin, as the Bible says. Uh, Henry goes on to say, their own lusts were evil spirits. They are devils in men's own There are devils in men's own hearts. From them come wars and fightings. These God gave them up to, and so might be said to send the evil spirits between them. When men's sins is made their punishment, though God is not the author of sin, yet the punishment is from them. God is punishing them. There's this wickedness in their hearts, this desire for power in their hearts. And God is you judging them by way of that. He's handing them over to their sin. So again, two things in view. Their own wickedness, their own sin, but the devil who just stirs those very things up. But the point is, there's theological explanation. God is bringing judgment. And so we see this, perhaps this conspiracy building, this, this mutiny building. So the men are against uh, the men uh, of Shechem and the men of Shechem deal treacherously with Abimelech that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood be made laid upon Abimelech who killed them and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And so verse 25, they set up the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told Abimelech. What they're trying to do is create a black eye. Typically, a good leader is one who brings safety for his people. A bad leader lets safety go by the wayside. And so the men of Shechem, they're engaging in treachery. They're engaging uh, in uh, a plot. They're saying, look, Abimelech can't protect us. Look, Abimelech is not a leader. They're sowing discord. And they're also um, trying to, 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 to take away anybody's confidence in Abimelech. So it begins. And this guy, 
uh, named Gael, the son of Ebed. Perhaps he is a Canaanite. This, perhaps he's of the line of Hamor. He comes waltzing in. And he goes into the bar of Baal. He goes during happy hour, as David says. They come in, his brothers went over to Shechem and the men of Shechem, and they put their confidence in this guy. And so they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry, and they go into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. He begins to run his mouth. He's had one drink too many. And verse 28 is quite difficult. And perhaps it could be that it's so difficult because he's slurring his words. Because he doesn't know what he's saying. Because he is opening his mouth against Abimelech when he is drunk. And so we see him open his mouth. We see him run his mouth. We see him curse Abimelech and challenge him. So he says, who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the man of Hamor, the father of Shechem. That was in Genesis 34. So again, perhaps he's a descendant of Hamor. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. And so he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. He has the gall. He, has the, he thinks he has the might and the power of Shechem behind him. And so this leads to the occasion where Abimelech is going to be the instrument in God's hand against Shechem. But as we're going to see, there's going to be a lady who is an instrument in the hand of God to bring judgment against Abimelech. It is fascinating as we read it. Also, you, know, you can't say the Bible is boring when you read uh, the book of Judges, but Judges chapter 10. And so it begins. This sort of uh, conflict begins to emerge. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. There is a mutiny happening, Abimelech, time to take it out. Now therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be, as soon as the sun is up in the morning, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, that you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So here's the plan. Here's the ambush. This guy is opening his mouth. He's laying forth the plan. Not a good idea. Then verse 34, Abimelech and all the people who were with him, they rise by night. They lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, he comes out in the early morning getting his coffee after a night and stood in the entrance to the city gate. Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. I love this interchange. I mean, you can't say it's not juicy. Verse, uh, verse 36. But Zebul said to him, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. You're absurd. You don't know what you're saying. It's early in the morning. You've had too much to drink. And then Gael looks a little bit closer. So Gael spoke again and said, See, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. And then Zebul gets the last word, doesn't he? Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now? He's happy to run his mouth in the tavern of Baal. But now when the army's coming, his mouth is shut. Gale has come up. Gale has run his mouth. And God is using this instance as a way to bring judgment against 
Shechem. Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. He's all talk and no walk. He's ready to fight when, nobody, when nobody's there to challenge him, and now there is a formidable army. And so Gael goes out, he leads them out of Shechem, they fight with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, verse 40, and he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate, and Abimelech dwelt at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his brothers, so they would not dwell in Shechem. And so the absurdity of Gael, all talk, his anti-Abimelechian sentiment uh, is shut down very quickly. His mouth is shut, but God is still going to bring judgment. And we see God's judgment in verses 42 through 57. Judgment on Shechem and then judgment on Abimelech. And notice the judgment on Shechem in verses 42 through 49. And so we see the plan turns to Shechem. There's this anti-Abimelechian sentiment now it transitions to see how he's going to deal with it. And he does so like a petty tyrant. Verse 42. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. And so he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose and he attacked the people. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And here come the other two companies rushing in the fields all, upon all who were in the fields, and they killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city, killed the people in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. And when all the men of the tower, men of the tower of Shechem, had heard that they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berit, they're finding refuge in their god, God Berit, God of the covenant. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Salmon. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand. They grabbed some branches. They grabbed a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people, said to the people who were with him, what have, you, what have you seen me do? Make haste and do as I have done. And so we see the fire lit. Verse 49. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. We see the fulfillment of Jotham's curse. God said that he would bring judgment not just upon Abimelech, but on Shechem for their treachery as well. God sees all things. God knows all things, and God will bring just judgment in his timing. It took three years, but he brings just judgment. That was what Israel needed to recognize. Israel, Shechemites, Abimelech, they're becoming like the nations around them. If they be, and if Israel as a whole becomes like the nations around them, God is going to bring judgment. But then we see judgment upon Abimelech, verses 50 through 55. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, which is probably a city nearby, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in that city as well, and all the men and the women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Let's try this again. We burned the tower of Shechem. Let's burn the tower of Thebes. Let's see if this works again. But I love the judgment of the Lord. It kind of comes with a bit of a thud, doesn't it? 
and in this case with the lady with her millstone. A certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. I mean, it draws our attention back to jail, doesn't it? How God uses jail to drive the tent peg through Sisera's head. And once again, we see here how another unlikely deliverer comes. But in this case, the deliverer is one who brings deliverance against an Israelite, against Abimelech. And she just happened to have a millstone. Davis jokes, he's, you know, uh, personifying it and is setting the scene. And he says that the husband's running and panting. He's like, well, honey, why are you grabbing that millstone? And she says, well, you never know when you're going to need a good millstone. And in this case, certainly we see that. We see that God uses this millstone uh, to judge Abimelech. So Abimelech's head is crushed and we see his humiliation. Then he calls quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Lest the men say of me, a woman killed him. It would be humiliating to be killed by a woman. It's humiliating to die, for for Sisera to die by jail. And so in this case, no, young man, kill me instead so I can say it was my own armor uh, uh, armor bearer who killed me. So draw the sword, thrust me through, and his young man does it. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. God brings judgment in the most unexpected way, but nonetheless... It is still judgment. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. And the theological explanation of this whole thing comes in verses 56 and 57, which pairs with uh, 23, and also even the the curse of Jotham. So it says, verse, uh, verse 56, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. So fire upon Abimelech, or in this case, a millstone upon Abimelech. And verse 57, all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. You chose a wicked king, and God brought fire upon you. Abimelech is a wicked man, and God brought Judgment. Gideon has issues, but the Lord esteems him. And God brings judgment. It shows that Israel is in bad shape. Jotham has the last word. God has the last word. God's word stands forever. Israel needs to understand that. His word of blessing, but also his word of cursing. God will do what he says he will do, because Israel is in bad shape. Israel is like Canaan. Israel is like the nations around them, rather than being separate and honoring God most high. Now again, I struggled with some application. What, what can we draw out? What do we need to do based on you know, what we see here? Make sure you have a good millstone with you as you're running around. But the application, the realization of Yahweh's judgment. There's the justice, the promise of Yahweh's judgment, but he, he is the one who will bring about that judgment. This is a warning for Israel. God will judge his enemies even when Israel acts like the world around them. Now, there is some application to the church as well. When it comes to the universal church, when it comes to having, always having a true church in this world, Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. However, local churches can degenerate into a synagogue of Satan. 
Local churches can lose their lampstands. And that's why it's important for good, solid local churches to beware, to be on guard. There are many churches in history where you think about the men who used to be pastors there, and then you look at them nowadays, and you look at the, where they're at now, or where they were at even after a few, after several generations, how quickly things can change. That's why if I have a vision for Surrey Reformed Baptist Church, we just press on in the things that we're called to do. To be faithful, to be a pillar and ground of truth, to be faithful in the things of God, to be, pre, uh, to be a church that preaches the word. That is what we are called to do. Because God does chasten his church. God can remove, local, uh, remove the lampstand from a local churches. And one thing that Davis points out uh, with respect to how this judgment unfolds, did you notice how ordinary it is? Yes, we have the theological explanation, but by and large, it's pretty ordinary. Men fighting, men despising one another, a guy running his mouth, a guy having too much pride, a guy thinking that he can take out Abimelech, Abimelech hearing about this, uh, war, uh, uh, confronting, planning, plotting, millstones, all those sorts of things. It is all very uh, very ordinary, but it's judgment nonetheless. It's not this hellfire and brimstone, although there is fire and there is a millstone, but nonetheless it is still the Lord's. Vengeance is the Lord's, and we must let it be so. We just must be faithful. And one positive spin we can take from this is that when we consider the realization of Yahweh's judgment, yes, we have to be watchful, but there is that promise that God will remove treacherous leaders. And God does remove treacherous leaders, and there is that promise that they shall receive their due. Now, thankfully, if we're in Christ Jesus, Christ has borne our due upon himself, and we are forgiven in him. And we, but, but for those who do not believe on Christ and those who hate the church of God and despise it, they shall receive their due. It doesn't mean that we are supposed to be vengeful and bitter. What it means is we put our trust in the promise of God that he is going to bring judgment. Judgment day is a blessing for the people of God in many ways. One, because we get to go to heaven. But two, because God will make his enemies his footstool. Christ is making his enemies his footstool and Christ will do so in full on that day. And poor leaders, even in time and space as we wait, they are going to be removed. No, there's a shelf life for every leader. I take great comfort in that. There is a shelf life for every leader. And I'm leader. I'm hoping that his shelf life is about to expire. But there is a comfort there. Davis says, here lies a firm comfort for God's beleaguered people. God destroys the destroyers of his people. The rulers of this age have never learned that whoever touches the flock of Yahweh touches the apple of his eye and therefore places itself under God's sword or millstone. So we have to recognize that. There is comfort there. But another application for us to be watchful against, Davis goes on to say, similarly, if God's people are God's sacred temple, how careful the church's teachers and members must be not to destroy that temple by teaching error or brewing strife. There is strife among Israel. There is error in Israel. Teachers and members alike must be watchful. 
We must not sow discord among brethren. We must not be obnoxious or critical with our brethren. We must be truthful and kind and gracious with our brethren. The whole encouraging thing is that Christ is going to come. And when Christ comes, there's going to be no more. No more strife amongst the people of God. No more quarreling amongst the people of God. And no more wicked leaders who try to take out the people of God. And thankfully, we can be assured that there is one king. There is one king who reigns over all. There is one king on his throne. And that king is the one who cares for you and I. And he is the one who will build his church. This is all that we can see and glean and learn from Judges chapter 10 and the treachery of Abimelech. Well, let us pray. Our God, we are thankful that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and we're thankful for the things that you teach us, even in obscure passages that we probably never read as in-depth as we should or never slowed down to pay attention to, but we're thankful for what you show us. We're thankful that you show us how vile and wicked idolatry is and where sins can lead and where pride can lead and where uh, there is much treachery. And we are thankful we can also learn as well uh, about the seriousness of the curse, the seriousness of death, the seriousness of violating your law. But as we consider these things, may it point us to Christ. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his dying Thank you that he was betrayed according to your purpose for us. Thank you that he endured the curse for us. And thank you that he is the one who suffered for us. And so thank you that he reigns supreme even now. He is king over all. He is the head of the church. And we ask and pray, O oh Christ, that you would continue to govern your church. Please build your church. Please raise up qualified elders and deacons in your church. We pray that for here. Please help us to be faithful. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be sustained. Uh, help the members to be edified and encouraged and uplifted. Help us all as members to um, not be carried about by every wind of doctrine, but just be patient and be willing to learn and be willing to listen and be willing to listen to others and not to sow discord among one another and when we sin be quick to seek forgiveness and so help us to learn this help us to grow in these ways and help us to uh, press on in the things of you and we are thankful for the encouragement that judgment day shall come thank you for the encouragement that judgment day shall happen at the time when christ comes again thank you that all those who hate the church all those who hate christ and his people uh, shall be removed. And thank you that in, in your providence, even now in time and space, leaders are removed. And so help us to be encouraged by these things. We pray that Surrey, uh, Surrey's lampstand would never go out, that it would always be that city on a hill, that lamp that is shining forth, that beacon uh, of hope and beacon of help, that sanctuary for your people. And please help us to not grow weary of coming not grow weary of gathering, but to love to be with your people. Thank you for the light that Christ is as the light of the world, and may we shine his light in a crooked and perverse generation. So be with us, give us aid, help us to be watchful,